I want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It certainly is a privilege to be here. And I feel blessed to be amongst other fathers, godly fathers, <clears throat> here this morning. Um, you know, fathering is a high calling. It's a big job. And uh, I find it to be a challenge continually. A few Sundays ago, it didn't seem like more than a few. It may have been more than a few. I shared a message on, uh, on the help meet, on the women's role in the family. And I stated at that point that I would look forward to sharing a message at some point on on the role of the father. And uh, it came around a little more quickly than I was anticipating. Uh, I thought maybe that would be a year away or more. But it uh, seemed like the Lord took that seriously and he put that on my plate. And I needed it. And I think we all need it. Um, this morning's message, I've entitled The Leader Man. If you recall, the message directed to the ladies was the help me. <clears throat> and this is a message directed to fathers. You know, not that I have attained do I preach this message. Now, there are times we talked about, we uh, studied in, in first Peter this uh, second first Peter this morning, we studied about suffering and there's just times that a man has to embrace the pain. And that's kind of how I felt in studying this uh, subject. I'd like to look back to, to Genesis again. I think it does us well to remember um, where this starts. I'd like to look at Genesis one twenty six and just quickly read through some Bible texts there. Genesis one twenty six through 28 God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And I find this beautiful. He had made the fish. He had made the living creatures, uh, the cattle, so forth. And then he said, let us make man in our image. That's exalting man to a very high level. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And I'll just insert, male and female are created in the image of God. However, we'll read a little later that, according to the Bible narrative, female came a little Female came a little later in the, in, the, in the narrative here. Verse 28, Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man whom he had formed. So the first occupation, the farmer, out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight of, 
in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this tree would end up trying Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. So we have the man here tending and keeping the garden. The Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make an helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So the exhausted Adam, I'm presuming that he had done a big job, named all the, the uh, animals. He goes into a deep sleep and a divine surgery takes place. And this will be the most significant surgical operation until later on when Mary, the Virgin Mary, becomes divinely pregnant with the Christ child. The rib which the Lord God had taken from Adam, from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And woman and consequently the ensuing human race all reflect the image of God. And I don't want us to forget that because we're constantly told today as part of the worldview, the opposing worldview, uh, that we're not really that much different. We're simply a bit of a higher form of evolution. And I want us to keep in mind that is not the case. That is not our worldview. We have a biblical view. So in Genesis 3, the serpent enters the picture. Eve is deceived. Adam becomes complicit in eating the forbidden fruit. And Adam and Eve's eyes are open. God calls out Adam for an explanation there in the garden. Adam lays the blame on Eve. God lays punishment on both Adam and Eve for their failure to follow his command. And many sorrows are the result of man's rebellion. 1 Timothy 2.13 and 14 say, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And these verses here point out that Eve was deceived by the serpent, but Adam knowingly transgressed. Perhaps Adam didn't do all he could, or he could have done, to protect Eve from the serpent's cunning. Perhaps Eve didn't really believe Adam. I don't know. I don't know what all took place there. However, it was a tragedy for them, for mankind. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.3, we have this headship principle. I would have you know the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Just reinforcing again, the man is first in line to answer to God for his family. 
It's a Genesis principle brought into the New Testament, reinforced in the New Testament. And so I'd like to move into the New Testament and, and kind of keep that in mind as being made in the image of Christ. And I'd like to uh, focus on us fathers this morning, fathering as in the image of Christ. And I think of the following passage in Ephesians as being the New Testament guideline for the new Adam and the new Eve to fulfill God's design of being created in his image. You know, God grows us. He sanctifies us into his image and he needs, he requires us to be uh, involved with his plan of, of being formed into his image. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the Savior, and he, Christ, is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The husband is head, the leader of the family. The wives are, sub to, are to submit, to work with their husbands in fulfilling God's plan and design. Ephesians 6, 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, we bear the responsibility for raising of our children, for not provoking them to wrath. And I'd like to look at that a little more later. But to bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Again, when God, this God design becomes tangled or tampered with, there's always confusion and there's always frustration. Um, it's true. Um, parent, para, parents can raise children. A single parent can raise children. It's true that there's many other ways that can work by the grace of God, possibly. But it's not God's original design. It doesn't work the best. Um, just like a hammer doesn't work the best for tightening up a bolt or a wrench for putting in a nail. God has a, a design and He has a headship order. And families work the best when they work with that design. So wives submit, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands love your wives as your own bodies. Fathers bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What a high calling for us as fathers. A call to take the position of leader in the ultimate humble and loving way. A call that I'm still learning and, and, and falls short of so often. You know, we as men, I believe, tend to gauge our success in so many faulty ways. Uh, maybe one is, is how well we provide for our own. How many toys we get our children, you know, heard lots of different explanations of how we can gauge ourselves in faulty ways. You know your heart. You know, you know what your goals, what your ambitions are. This morning, I want to draw us all up short and have us look at the Word. 
What does God call us to? What does he call me to? You know, we are to provide for our own. The Bible speaks to that. And I don't want to miss that. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially at those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And this could be more broadly applied than just to fathers, but it narrows, certainly narrows to fathers caring for their wives and their families and caring for those physical needs and could probably move on to spiritual needs. The Bible also defines providing. In 1 Timothy 6.6 it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We have brought nothing into this world and we certain we can't carry anything out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So, going back to this again, it's so easy for us as fathers, for us as men, to forget that providing, you know, the qualifications of providing. Having food and clothing, let us, let us be content. You know, God blesses in different ways. And I don't want to say, you know, there's a limit on your blessing here. You have to stop now with food and clothing or, you know, not shelter or whatever. But I think you get the idea. Um, we shouldn't be gauging our success um, in a faulty way just by how well we provide for our family. Although we're called to that. You know, another thing that I think we as fathers, we as men are concerned about or naturally concerned about is the status, our status to those around us. And as a very crude example, as a 15-year-old new on building pole barns, and some of you may not know what pole barns are, you haven't missed a lot. Um, these are very simply made structures, poles in the ground, two by fours around the outside and metal on top of that and uh, na nailed on metal when I was doing it. And um, I just recall, you know, as a boy, you know, thinking that if I would become the fastest nailer, and that involved, you know, having a pouch at your side and being able to reach down and pull out nails quickly and place them, pull them out, place them quickly and hammer them through the metal, that, you know, how important I would become if I was just the fastest nailer. And... Um, you know, the result of that goal was that the only person I became more important to was possibly my boss who, bened who benefited financially from my increased efficiency. Um, and I'm not sure that he benefited that much. Otherwise, I, s I succeeded in having ongoing black and blue thumbs and fingers for all my troubles. And, and you know, it seems like that's the case. Impressing others is often that self-inflicted pain. Brings about a self-inflicted pain. It doesn't work the righteousness of God. How about if we, you know, really gauge our success on, you know, on how well we're doing at loving our wives, at loving our family, as Christ loved the church. This kind of leading and focus is sure to reap reward. It's sure to be healthy for us and not to bring about self-inflicted pain in our lives. 
More importantly, it's what Christ asked of us. He gave himself for us wholly and completely. He gave of himself what we needed, not what we asked for. And that's important for a father leader to recognize. And that's why it's so important he stays in tune with the scripture, in tune with the in prayer, in tune with the Holy Spirit's leading. Christ gave him gave, gave of himself, not what we asked for. We asked for a victorious earthly king. Christ made himself of no reputation. We asked salvation from the Romans. Christ used the Romans as his instrument of death. We demanded earthly miracles and signs. Christ brought us spiritual healing. You know, as fathers were called to not transgress or to be led in deception like Adam and Eve were, but to lead out in truth and in holiness, even when popular opinion may be against us. And I believe there's never been a time when discernment and obedience are needed more by fathers than today. Our culture is fast moving away from what we consider the godly family. It's fast moving away from what we consider the, the godly norms. And as it moves away from that, new norms are established. We'll become more and more isolated. Our model based on Scripture will become more and more quaint. And as it's said in Scripture, righteousness can even be called evil. And, and people will probably do that and are already. We need to be really, really tuned as fathers to the Word and to Christ's leading. And I, fathers, I challenge you today, if, if your life were judged today, now, on the merit of how well you're doing at loving your wife, your family, in relation to what Christ said, is, is Christ loved the church, and if you are judged today at, at how well you're presenting your family to God as a pure and, a, and an unwrinkled part of his bride, how would, how would you come in? How would you present yourself? What would God have to say? I know we're all unprofitable servants, but it's, it's something to think about. My godly grandfather, who always had always had this to say when, when anyone mentions something good about him or his family. This is what he'd say. If there's anything good in my family or myself, it's not because what I've done, but because of the grace of God. He'd, he'd always say, if I have so many faults and so many shortcomings, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. And that's the same for my family. And he'd always say that in some way or twist, but it always came out. And it was his it was his testimony. As fathers, it would be much more convenient for us to simply rely on the grace of God and our wives' prayers to raise our families. You know, that would leave us more time to, to pursue our own ambitions, to realize our own dreams, do our own thing. However, God's grace is designed to work best in our families when we as fathers 
take the lead to father in, in Christ's image. You know, if our families, if we're doing well, it is only by the grace of God that enables us to do well. But we need to do our part. In Psalm 127, 1 through 5, I see intentional fathering. And uh, you're welcome to look to there. Psalm 127, verse 1 through 5. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up till late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. And I think this can apply to the family. I think it does apply to the family, especially seen in the context of verse 3 through 5. Except the Lord build the house, build the city. Um, the watchman waketh, but in vain. And I, I think that we can insert father here. The father, the one that is supposed to protect and provide for. He wakes, but in vain. It, it's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. If the Lord's not involved in your parenting, in your fathering, uh, it's vanity. And then he says, Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. You know, this is counterculture. Children are so often seen, or are so often portrayed as simply a burden, simply something we have to do, or simply something that it comes about. They're not seen as an intentional blessing from God. Received as a blessing from God. They're in heritage of the Lord. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gate, or with the enemies in the gate. In other words, these... Children won't be ashamed. They'll be able to speak with the enemies in the gate uh, with the backing of, of the Lord. And when I read this, I, these couple of images came to my mind that I'd like to share with you. Imagine a person being given a diamond, which would, be, which would make this person, maybe a poor person, immeasurably wealthy. You know, a diamond. And imagine him taking and trading that, that person, that poor person, taking that diamond and trading it for a carton of cigarettes. Letting it go, slip through his hands. And we have that account in Matthew where it says the man, where it talks about the man selling all his possessions to buy a field where he knew that there was something special in, a gem in. But imagine someone taking that being given something of immeasurable wealth like a diamond and just, just giving it away for a carton of cigarettes. Or imagine an impoverished person, maybe in India, or Africa, or here in the States, or wherever, being given a bull and a cow as a means for income. And that person trading that bull and cow, that a good quality, a good bread, bull and cow, maybe a good Angus or whatever it is, trading that for some beans and some rice or some beans and some bread. Saying, you know, not really understanding the worth of it, I guess. 
We all think about the goose that laid the golden eggs. You know, they, it laid one egg after another, but it would only lay one a day. And so the farmer and his wife would run out there and get that egg right away. And they got greedy finally, and they couldn't wait for the goose to lay another egg. So they cut it open, killed the goose and cut it open. And sure enough, there was one more egg, but the goose was dead. Well, imagine an earthly father be given, being given a wife and children who are his blessing and his charge from God and being neglectful to them. Perhaps selling them, perhaps selling the time that he should have them with them for something else, for another contract, a, a hobby, some extra hours, some screen time he shouldn't be involved in, unnecessary tangling, screen time, harmful, even deadly. Perhaps selling them for many other things. Involvements. You know, what a shame. What a shame. It could be a lack of appreciation for what is a for what, the, for what is a good wife and a good family, a lack of appreciation for what God has given, a greater value on things and other people than on a focus on, on uh, the blessing of God. It could be just not spending time with his family um, in the communion of saints, in the communion of the body, you know, we as fathers can sell our wives and our children in so many ways. We can short them in so many ways. And we as fathers need to remember that, that our wives and our children are for eternity and everything else is simply passing. Our family is for eternity. These relationships, these special relationships that God has given us, they're for eternity and everything else is simply passing. It'll move on. All stuff and things, personal ambitions outside the Lordship of Christ are temporal. And they'll pass away. And the more entangled we come with the temporal stuff, the blacker and the bluer our thumbs will become. The more pain we'll inflict on ourselves. In the, psalm, the psalm imagery here in Psalm 127 likens children to arrows in the hands of a mighty man. And I think of an archer with purpose here. Arrows in that time would have likely taken some time to craft. They didn't have uh, composite materials to make arrows out of or aluminum to make the perfect aligned arrow. It was probably they crafted it out of branches, and these branches probably came from, were irregular. And so the archer, knowing his, his uh, talent, knowing what he did, he'd take time to craft these arrows carefully. And, and uh, I'm sure they were precious to him. They might mean life or death. They might mean game or no game. Or in the case of warfare, literal life or death because of a hit or miss. <clears throat> I'm sure the archer would look at these arrows, would become acquainted with them. He'd know how a slight crook in an arrow would make it respond in its flight path. 
They need to adjust accordingly. So his arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, in the hand of an archer, mighty archer. Likewise, children are in the hand of their parents, of their fathers. They take time to bring to maturity. We bring them from very, very, um, you know, dependent stage. They're totally dependent to a mature, more independent stage of life. In a few short years, it seems like. Children are precious because of the paternal factors involved. I'm thinking of just the natural bonds here. And like most of creation, uh, children are pretty much helpless for the first few years of their lives. They need their parents just to survive. And, and that dependency, that interdependency, creates a natural bond from the child to its parent and from the parent to its child. But I'm talking about more than just a natural bond here and the codependency. We're talking about a man that deeply appreciates the gift of children that God has given him. And he has an intent to see those children's, to see God's will accomplished in those children's lives. And here are some ways that I believe the caring father will shape his children's lives. He will teach them by example and training, chastening, if you will, to love. One way here, to love and to respect and cherish their mother. Husbands, in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, dwell with them, with your wives, as with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I believe a, a Christian father is going to, by example and training, I say this again, I think it's so important, chastening, if needed, to love and to cherish their mother. There's so many, so many bad implications for the child who's not taught to respect, to love, and to cherish his mother or her mother. And I believe that, firmly believe that the father's responsibility goes on beyond being a good example to his children in teaching them to love their mother, to, to chastening them, to helping them get there if needed by form or, or uh, method. This doesn't mean the mother can cop out of the chastening chores of the disciplining chores. However, it does mean when there's evidence of disrespect coming from the child, a loving and kind dad will step in with reinforcement when needed to move things in the right direction. This is a way of cherishing, of giving honor to the weaker vessel. Number two, teach the, Bible, teach the children a biblical worldview from a young age. I think that's a father's role. And this involves devotions. Reflecting on the awesomeness of God as Creator, Redeemer, Savior. Teaching our children, and this is kind of a sidebar here, that the word awesome is an adjective to describe God. And not just to describe everyday events of life. Um, I know we use this word easily today, but I can remember when awesome, we didn't use that word unless we were talking about God. And I think we ought to get back to that again. Because really, truly, only God is awesome. 
Of course, it may be forgiven if our children use the word in describing their mother or their future wife. But um, anyways, moving on. Fathers, teach your children about the facts of life, about sex. It's a very important worldview that you cannot and you must not miss teaching your children. You as father know God's plan for sexuality, and you can't afford to wait for prevailing carnal views to get a foothold into their thinking patterns. Hollywood will be glad to teach your children. They'll be happy to do it. But you can afford to, to let them get a foothold. Be preemptive in this area. You know, it takes a lot of wisdom in knowing how much info a child is ready for. But I believe too many times, I truly believe too many times, children are ahead of their parents in this area and that that shouldn't be the case. There's good and helpful literature available to, to, to help, but I believe fathers, you ought to walk with your children, especially your sons in this area. And um, it shouldn't be just a sit-down chat. You need, to, you need to take time with your children in this area. Also take an interest in a greater global picture, the greater global view. There's so many things your children won't be taught in school that they should know about. Current affairs that come to mind, to my mind, are the Syrian refugees, what's happening in the Middle East, our fellow Christian community around the world, especially for those in need and those suffering. You know, we need to be letting our, talking to our children about those things. <clears throat> there's so many ways that we can affect their, their worldview. I was talking with a young father here just recently, and he was telling me about his eight-year-old daughter. Now, they were sitting at the table, and he said, it's just so interesting. All of a sudden, the conversation is moving, and she's talking about things outside their circles, events that are taking place, world events. And there are some children that are going to have more interest in that than the others, some parents that will... Fathers that will have more interest in that than others. But I think we do well to, to uh, nurture that interest, to look at those things and, and look at them in the light of God's Word. And that goes along with political events. I think fathers do well to talk to their children about politics. Uh, their politics are complex and they're unsavory at best, especially more recently. However, they do and they will affect us. And we're called, in Scripture, we're called to respect and to pray for our political leaders. And I believe as fathers, we do well to do the best we can to stay informed. And I would throw out a caution here. Don't get your news from the commentators, from the political commentators. Now they're... they're uh, they're not the best place to get news. You should read news that's news, okay? That hasn't been digested. Look at it carefully. If you're going to get news off of talk radio and take that and go with it, you're, you're taking someone else's digested opinions there. Look at what's happening and look at it in the light of God's Word. And, and I encourage you, fathers, to try to make sense of that with your children. You know, what, what's happened in your lifetime? Who's been in president in your lifetime back so far so you know so far back and what's happening today and you know the shifts that take place there's there's lots of 
uh, things to look at. I'm going, I, uh, just sitting down here this morning, my mind went to a uh, little essay that was uh, written by Garrison Keillor, which was, I'm not a fan of Garrison Keillor, but um, I thought this piece was really good and just an example of, of something that you fathers could talk to your children about. Um, maybe you don't have children here yet, that age yet, but I think I, this, is, this is an example of what I'm thinking of. So Garrison Keillor, he's, uh, he was uh, retired from the prayer, is it Prairie Home Companion or something? I'm, I forget exactly what it is, but this, caught, this piece caught my eye. I'm taking this out of, his, out of a piece that he wrote. So the country is put to a historic test, and he's speaking of our current candidate, uh, Republican candidate. So the country is put to a historic test. If the man is not defeated, then we are not the country we imagine we are. All of the millions spent on education was a waste. The churches should close up shop. The nation that elects this man president is not a civilized society. So here is a liberal man with a very liberal point of view saying this. And if you read it, it in the context of his whole essay, um, you, you know that he's basically saying vote for, you know, Hillary. Might as well say it. Well, that's not really my point here. My point is, is that when he says this, all the trillions spent on education was a waste. You know, that's a great point to bring up to our children. This man is not a creationist, I don't believe. You know, here's the great point he makes that really works against him. All this talk about evolution and survival of the fittest and so forth, um, maybe he's on to something there. Um, maybe what the schools have been teaching is coming to fruition here. Um, these are some things that I'd like, you know, we, we should be, I think, um, pointing out to our children what, how has society shaped where we're at today? What, what have been the, not how has society shaped, how have agendas shaped where we're at today as a society is a better way to put it. Okay, so much for that. Fathers, we're called to keep our children's hearts. Ephesians 6, 4 says, provoke not your children to wrath. I think of Absalom when I think of this verse. He was a talented young man. He was provoked at his father, King David, for not punishing his half-brother for molesting his sister, Tamar. You know, Absalom, I believe, had reason to be angry, very angry at David, King David. And we would expect a brother to be upset if his sister were treated the way Tamar was treated. Beautiful young girl, molested like she was. We'd expect a brother to be upset. And we all know the story didn't end out well. Absalom eventually rebelled and all of Israel suffered in the turmoil. King David was forced out of the throne for a while. Eventually Absalom was hung by his own vanity, his own long hair. However, the point is, is that David lost Absalom's heart when he refused or he neglected to act righteously early on. He lost Absalom's heart. And I think that has something to do with provoking not your children to anger. When, we, when our children feel like they're not listened to, like they're not uh, 
um, appreciated. Like they're actually rejected in the way Absalom was here. We lose their heart. I had a conversation with a godly man recently who, in sorrow, related to me how that his daughter had fallen into fornication. And his words were this, I lost your heart. And that's always stuck with me, to me. You know, thankfully, thankfully by the grace of God, tears and a lot of hard work, uh, this father won his daughter, daughter's heart back again. And she's now faithfully serving the Lord. She's living a beautiful life now. The father's testimony, though, was that he was so involved in so many good things, so many good works, organizations that he just didn't have time for the family. He would come home exhausted from doing good things. And there'd still be calls to take. And he said his daughter would come to him and say, Dad, I just want, you know, some time with you. And he'd say, well, I just don't have any of this evening. And this went on and on. It was a pattern. And one day he realized that he had lost his heart, her heart. He said he had to make some big changes in his life. But it was all worth it to have his daughter back again and serving the Lord. We need to keep our children's heart. We as fathers, I believe this call to not provoke goes on, goes beyond just not simply making them angry. I think, again, it goes to the point of not letting them feel rejected or second rate to you. I'm not exactly sure how a father goes about doing right all the time by his children or to his children. But there are a few things that I'm pretty sure of here that are important that we can do. A few practical things. Take interest in your children's interest. Not appeasement, but actual genuine interest. Involve your children in your life as much as possible. You know, parenting is a process of taking the child from immaturity and dependency to maturity and independency. And there's so many things you can teach and train your children, your child, from your own life's experience. You may not be a rocket scientist. You may not be, you know, feel yourself the brightest father on the block. But there's so much that you can teach your child from your own life's experience if you're only willing. I'm sorry, I'm beyond time here where I thought it'd be. And your child will appreciate you for it. Bring your children to Christ. Not one time, but all the time. Your child will find out pretty quickly that you're not a perfect father. However, the father that is Christ-focused and who by his own humility moves to the cross time and time again and stays beneath the cross and is completely reliant on Christ will most likely affect his children to the same focus a focus on the Heavenly Father. And if by your example and your teaching as a father and your leading, you bring your children to the feet of the cross or to the knee of Jesus, I believe yours will be and mine will be the jewel of great price. But that takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of humility and a lot of discipline and a lot of giving up of ourselves. Jesus in Ephesians 6, 4, it says, bring your children in the up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Jesus taught, or he taught as he walked with his disciples. And I believe this is the best way to teach our children. 
about Jesus and about the things of life. As a father, as I think of being a father, the farmer's lifestyle seems best suited for this. I look at farmers occasionally with this this uh, real feeling of envy. You know, how great would that be to always have your children by your side? And the farmers look back at me and I can see a lot of, a lot of uh, perplexity there. However, God gives grace. He, God does give us grace for whatever occupation we have to walk or we have to work in. He gives us grace to walk with our children, to teach them, to nurture and admonish our children. And I've seen this happen. I've seen fathers who are in very different kinds of occupations walk with their children. And it's given me, it's given me a, um, an encouragement that there is a way. God gives grace. And I'm sure there are many fathers, many father farmers who have gotten so busy that they haven't been able to walk with their children or their children haven't been able to walk with them. And... Uh, so I think it's more important about our focus as fathers, about our goals, our commitments. The other very important thing that we as fathers must do, I believe, is to gather our children uh, together into the assembly, like it talks about in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This assembling of ourselves and exhorting one another of the church is a tremendous help, an existential, I believe, help to our fathering program. At least if we want to stay Christ-focused. You know, Christ made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a man, became a servant, became a, the sacrifice, an atonement for the sake of his bride. He did the, all of this out of love for us. He wished to commune with us. He loved us and wished to commune with us. And I believe his fathers should appreciate and make a wholehearted effort in return, as in the image of Christ, to find communion for our children in the body of Christ, for our family in the body of Christ, and Christ as Christ's own um, bought and purchased bride. Well, I want to do something just a little different this morning. I want to close. And I do want to say I feel like this is a very important message. I just, I have felt this since I started studying for this message. I felt the need for prayer. It seemed like the devil um, has blocked my thought process more in studying this message than, than probably any other that I've studied. And uh, by the grace of God, it is what it is, if it's of any value. But I would like to close this message this morning uh, looking at Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And this is the Lord's Prayer. I'd like to look at it just briefly, and then I'd like for us to stand. And all of those 15 years males 15 years and older, I would like for us to, to um, pray together the Lord's Prayer as a commitment to, to be the kind of men, however that comes in, whether we're fathers, whether we're not fathers, whether we hope to be fathers, whether we were fathers or our grandfathers, 
as a prayer of commitment to Christ uh, to be what we should be. So I'm going to uh, just look at this. The few things I'd like for us to keep in mind for fathers for us to remember here is it's God's kingdom. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's exalted. Thy kingdom come. God's kingdom. Thy will be done. His will is most important here on earth for our life and for the life of our family. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not about us giving to our children. We're simply stewards of God's provision. You know, I thank God so often just for the ability to bring bread on the, put bread on the table. If you can do that this morning as a father, you're so blessed. For provision, for clothing, we're stewards of God's grace. Forgive us and help us to forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Grant us the wisdom to live righteously, to live, to lead righteously in this perverted age. And all the glory goes to you. All the glory goes to God. To you belongs all the honor. We're just simply, again, stewards of your manifold grace. And you may think of other things when you pray this prayer. But I'd like for it to be a prayer of commitment from all of us. So if we could, in closing, just all stand together and... Uh, us, like I said, us males 15 years and older, recite this prayer.